Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. This is the second part of my conversation with James Hickey, CEO of Life Size Plans. In this part, we find out more about what has enabled life-size plans to succeed as a business beyond just having a unique idea. James also gives us an insight into his journey within the property industry, how he developed executive leadership, and why he now leads the life-size plans team. I hope you enjoy it. We've spoken at length about what Lifesize Plans does. I'd like to get into some of the nuts and bolts about what supports a business like Lifesize Plans. So maybe some of the inner workings of vision. So we've, we've explained vision, but you've got things like leadership and execution. So I was wondering if we can unpack some of those key aspects just so that we can understand how Lifesize Plans has evolved over time. We've got Chris as the founder. Like you said, he's trying to juggle various bits and pieces to get the business up and running. What was the critical juncture or, or that point in time where he thought that it there's some specialist skills that are needed to progress and to, to start growing and to start accommodating that sort of massive interest that um, Life Size Plans has? Yeah, so ever since the Shark Tank episode and the interest that was there, people coming out going, yeah, how do I get a piece of this? This is great. The team, the team aspect of it. And like I said, there was, you know, certain large firms that tried to buy it out. There was some private money that came in and said, we can help. And, but it was like, a, he didn't quite align with what their vision of it was. It wasn't 100%. It wasn't until early last year that one of Chris's contacts, who also is a builder developer, introduced him to our now current board. And it was at that stage where Chris was, he knew, he, again, he knew he had something, but how do I scale it? How do I grow it? He's an awesome builder and his IQ is probably the highest off the charts. So one of the people I know, he's amazingly intelligent. But he knew, he knew that, well, how am I going to grow this? I don't know the right team. I'm great at building and I know I've got an awesome product here, which is needs to get to the world, but how do I do it? And so that's where he was introduced to Stuart Cook and Andrew Blow, two of our directors. So Andrew is ex-media advisor for Tony Abbott um, and a, a lot of time in politics and a marketing as well. And he's got a lot of specialist skill in that part of the industry. And then you've got Stuart Cook, who was a, the CEO for Zambora and, and scaled that around the world. And also now he's running his own firm with Twio and spe- specializes in helping startups and looking at that initial capital seed raise and how do they take that to the world. And we've got, as part of that as well, Stuart's CFO, Ryan. He's our CFO at the moment as well, and he's brilliant. You can break down business models and look at your capital requirements and really get that modeling aspect of, of what we need across. And then we've got Chris's partner, Daniel, as well. And between the board and investors, that was the first bit. And so they went and said, okay, great, we need to build the right governance team, the right directorship team, and we need to really make sure that we've got that foundation for scale. And so the LifeSense Plans was, board, was born and the initial company was restructured with the right structure to actually scale globally. So from the holdings company to an IP company and then setting up the different operations and location entities to make sure you've got the right corporate structure. Once that was done, they said, well, great, we need now a team to scale this thing. And that's where they started looking to the market for a chief exec. 
And that's where it came across my desk. September last year that I started. Did this all happen very quickly? Because to go from a founder to a pretty heavy duty board is, was that something that, you know, how long did that take? That happened over a few months. Um, so the corporate structure in the way it exists today started you know, early last financial year, so the first of, and I came on board in that September. The initial, I guess, vision was to make the Auburn location on steroids. That was, that was the initial goal. Like, let's just put this as what it can be. And after coming on, my key aspect was I really spent my first few couple of months just learning and listening, even though, yes, the remit is to make life-size plans a global entity, and we will, it was around, well, what do we still need to learn? And that learning factor, we still hadn't quite learned all our lessons. And there was, there's still a little bit to learn. I think we'll learn forever, but we're now at that stage in our evolution where we knew that we needed better IP protection. And so our patents, our trademarks, our IP portfolio now is very robust. We spent a lot of time on supply chain. So that initial Shark Tank feedback, well, how are you gonna multiply this? How are you gonna get someone come in at a good price of entry so their return is you know, within a four year period? And we've spent a lot of time in that to get it down to, you know, that two to three year period where a huge amount of work on supply chain. So if we're scaling around the world, how do you have projectors installed on the same price list? How have you got the ability to have suppliers with different union agreements and all the likes installing and rigging and all those little bits and pieces yeah. in Canada versus Europe versus South Africa versus Australia? Like there's just different laws everywhere. So there was a lot of a lot of procedural risk assessments to do and mitigate those before we went really, really hard. So what we did is we we had a, you know, the whole turn MVP. It was a minimal vial product and the product was proven. And Chris here as a side business was doing over 500 grand a year and it was making extremely great margins and technically the business model was proven. So when the board came through and had a look at that, they went, yeah, this has something. We can definitely, with the right capital, and the right plan we can make we can scale this so i have you know the coming on in september the initial remit well here's our initial seed capital here's our objectives and goals and you know the beautiful part of every chief exec is you gotta make it happen make it happen <laughs> um the first the first couple of months was you know the first employee of life-size plans in its current format was me and looking at well what is the team that i need to build because you can't do anything by yourself looking at that staged way of doing it so the first part was well we need to grow Sydney. We need to prove Sydney that it is the flagship and this model is awesome like we know it is, but not just as the MVP model, but what it can be for a location. And it can double, you know, one location what the MVP was doing. Then it's, well, that's one location. How do you scale that? And we have started another location in Perth in September as well of this year. Perth started as a copycat. So someone saw it in the market on Shark Tank. And, you know, Chad, the, the previous owner, was, he's an awesome guy, very visionary in his local market and said, this is awesome. Yeah, I believe in this product. What we had at the very beginning of Life Size Plans didn't align with what Chris thought he could do. Sorry, with Chad with what he could do. And he ended up creating his own version. And there's been a couple of those versions pop up around the world. And my, my item in regards to coming on last year was, well, what can I learn from that? And a huge part of that was IP protection. And so from, from where we are now, we've got a very robust scheme. We've got trademarks approved now, I'm sorry, uh, patent approved in the US. We've got pendings in all of the world and trademarks now also launched as well to protect us. So really making sure that when we scale it, we are really ring fencing it. So we protect all of our future locations from copycats popping up and you know eroding their, 
they're offering. On the surface, it seems simple in that you've just got a projector and a, a clean floor, but there is... Yeah, it's not simple. It's not <laughs> that simple, is it? No, it's, no, it's really... It's so complicated. The, the trick is around that server design. It's around the the architecture of it and the workflow of it as well. For a, for a businessman to be able to say, well, yeah, this is a great concept, but how do we automate the managerial so the people can do what people need to do? And that's pretty much at the core of what we've done over the last 12 months. We've automated the managerial. So from the leads coming through to the CRM, the CRM getting all of the details to be able to make sure that our locations can facilitate their sales and, and really make sure they're engaging with their sales and getting the plans, making sure we understand you know, the right questions to ask, putting them all in the answers so by the time they get here, it's everything they need. And all the way through to then looking at the right team. And in terms of your role in executing the vision and leading, what are some of the key things that have you that you've implemented over your tenure so far? So the key item is where are we now? Where do we want to be? And how are we going to get there? And then more importantly, how do you know when you get there? Um, so that's an interesting one, yeah. Because I mean, there are goals, but so you know, always- the initial part is looking at your company summaries. You're doing your, your risk assessments. You're looking at your environmental factors. You're then looking at commonalities of those. So one of the key items that I personally do is you do all this, you know, normal SWOT analysis and your pestle analysis, and you got all, you know, your frameworks, which beautifully work. It's how do you then overlay them to make sure that you're looking for trends. So one of the key items that we did early on was I looked at all the trends. So what is the key risk that we're seeing across the environment, your, your clientele, you're looking at the mass volume versus your, your custom, looking at all the commonalities, hitting those first, and then going to the next commonality, but always asking questions. Um, I guess one of the key things for me in my role and, and forever is making sure that you know that you actually don't know the answers. You just got to be asking the right questions asking. eternally. That's right. Yeah. And as long as you're asking the right questions, the answers present themselves. Um, so the key framework that we've been setting up is so that we can always be present and be asking the right questions. So that way, when a client's coming in, we're not projecting what we think he needs or she needs. It's, well, here we are, over to you, and then listening. You've obviously developed this leadership style and I guess this methodology for teasing out how things should be done and sort of executing on a vision because that's why you're there. Can we get into some of your history so that we can understand where you've started and how you've developed into a business leadership role? Because I mean, that's got to come from somewhere. No one's born with knowing what to do. You've got to make some mistakes. Where does your history in construction begin? Construction began as a carpenter and joiner first year apprentice coming out of school, working in the cottage industry. So most of my time was spent probably a year worth of framing new homes, but most of it was spent in regards to second story additions and a lot of defect rectification. Early on in my career, I've been able to look at, I guess, the gaps that people always miss. And a lot of my time was in in that. Also some time in heritage joinery as well. And then I actually had the privileged chance of actually going overseas. I spent a couple of years traveling, but also did that on, on the tools at the same time. So, you know, from shop fit outs in Chelsea in London to, you know, all those, you know, building homes in Edinburgh. So, you know, I've, I've been able to privilege to use my skills and my hands around the world, but always seeing different ways of doing things. You know, the Australian way of building a house is very, very different from European way of building a house with the way they do their bracing and the way they do their insulation. It's, it's great to see those things. So, yeah, you started in carpentry. Started in carpentry, came back home after traveling. The market was pretty quiet. And I had a colleague of mine who was a, a CFO at Transfield. And he said, James, come on, come and do some supervision. And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't think um, corporates for me, I, I really like to, to learn, be out there, to be engaged and, and do that. 
I took a gamble and quickly on in that piece, so I started as a supervisor role, just, you know, managing trades, getting buildings done, managing defects and, and getting the programs done. Realized that my sequencing ability meant that I could do project management quite well. And so did some project management courses and then started doing some project management of all plan works for the same company. Then I started to get approached from other people and say, James, you're really good at, want to try and come work for us. And so I actually jumped around a little bit on the CV and I had some friends still joking me like, come on, it's got to settle down. Settle down yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I used it as a learning, a learning tool and ended up after a couple of years at a company called Munters and Munters were a global restoration and reconstruction company, predominantly focused in the insurance building industry. So I started managing a P&L there for about 20 million and quickly realized that I then had the ability to start seeing data trends quite well. And so all of a sudden there was a new job management system that was being rolled out around the world. And there was also a merger acquisition with the same company happening at the same time. I put my hat in the ring to do a global change management role which meant I could work across 32 countries doing the same thing. So not just manage P&L, but help the CEOs, the managing directors, the CFOs, all their frontline teams roll out one of the new systems, but also then look at how we we're gonna do it in regards to the way that new company structure was after the rebrand. And that learning was phenomenal. And that's where I've, you know, I've said, one year was at least worth seven years of experience in that role, working different country every week, working with some really great vice presidents across marketing, across operations, across IT structure and architecture of system designs, some awesome frontline teams, and the ability to just absorb and just learn and learn while I was really just facilitating change. But again, it's not my change. And that was the key learning for me, being able to go into different cultures it was always about learning and it was about really empathizing and listening to what was their problems and their issues. And when you actually blend them over, most of them are the same, but it's from their paradigm. So how do you relate to their paradigm and make something which is a head office, you know, because it was a Swedish company. So how do you bring the Swedish way around the world? And, and that was a challenge, but it was fun. It was brilliant. And the learning from that really set the foundation for me to come back home in 2011 after spending some time abroad and we fell pregnant with our second and my wife said, no, we're going to do this at home. So we, we came home <laughs> and came across a company called Maincom. So Maincom were a insurance builder and had a presence across Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, a good size. And we were able to double that company in the first 18 months. And it was mainly around this culture items and measuring they had great systems but then my data started looking at it and then how are we going to analyze the data where's the information points what can we see where we're we going wrong what can we pivot on straight away where are our you know where are we engaging with our clients and are we giving them everything they're asking for and again it's learning asking questions and, and constantly looking at what you've been presented in the now so you can make decisions and it's just phenomenal that you've been able to develop that in a, in your own sort of way as well. You're sort of able to listen and just pick things up while you're in while you're in that role. It's a pretty yeah. I, it's know, a rare I've, skill. I've got some family members that say I've got really big ears because I'm always I'm, I'm always listening. <laughs> um, and like, how did you hear that? Well, yeah. I'm always listening. I'm always trying to understand what people are trying to say. And I guess even now talking to our team like as we're interviewing franchisees and, and growing the brand, it's the nuances. It's what some people don't say. But you can tell they're trying to say something that you need to dig and you really need to try and understand what's in people's minds to be able to, to better lead. So that brings us to life-size plans. So you're back here, you're settling down, family on the way. How did that come about? 
after, so I was chief exec for Maincom for eight years and actually had a bicycle accident in 2018 and a couple of vertebrae shattered. And at that stage, the, the company was running well and had a chat with the owners and said, look, okay, I think now's the time I'll, I'll step out. And during that time, had a bit of an interim company arrangement with a company called SBL, building wind turbines around the world in wind farms around Australia. Then looking at, well, what's the next step? And some time for self-reflection, really. I know after you have an accident, you spend a lot of time lying on your back doing nothing. So I was like, well, all right, what do I enjoy and what do I really want to do next? And we all have that in our minds. You know, we all want to add value. We all have passions. How can we actually use those passions to go out to the world and add some value? With myself, I wanted to find something and Life Size Plans definitely has provided it, where I can not just build companies in industries. So Maincom spent a lot of time in the insurance sector, but also in the homeowner warranty sector. So fixing problems, fixing homes where builders had collapsed. And seeing that, I could have gone and potentially established another company or done something in the similar vein, but it was like, well, you're not solving the problem. And that's where the value side of me started coming in. So what is something where I can actually add value here and i've been following the building commissioner's um, journey and for quite some time as well and at around that same time i was actually thinking of applying for a job there at the same time i don't think i'm kind of for government or more private sector orientated life-size plans just dropped i had two people actually in the same day when they advertised said james this is this is for you dude and uh, the universe has spoken two people in the same day i had a bit of a look as soon as i met the board yeah fell in love this brand has something and has always had something what can i do to help it grow and that's, that was yeah, my, how I started the, into the journey of life-size plans. Just thinking in terms of insurance, I mean, how stressful is that? There's builders going broke, there's people that can't move in or there's critical issues. With- or cyclones or earthquakes or yeah, you know, there's, a, there's yeah. a, lot of, a lot of stuff going on in that sector. But if there's an element of prevention. And that's when my, my personal passion started with life-size. Back to our conversation just before around you know, the Practitioners Act. I do believe life-size plans has a part to play in that because we are letting people design the right homes, design the right structures, design the right apartments, design whatever. It can be designed here in that way where we're making those mistakes up front. And they're just lines on a page, so not a mistake for long, that's right. (laughs) So in terms of the skill set that you bring to life-size plans, you mentioned it's your listening and your nuanced ability to pick up bits and pieces that people miss. What are some of the other things that really enable you to excel in this? We got to have the right structure. And then you've got to have the right team. You can't do anything without the right team. No matter how good the product is, no matter how good you are, you might be as an individual or technical person, you've got to have specialists within your organization who follow the same ethos and are able to listen. That's where I've spent most of my last 12 months, as well as designing the, you know, the foundation aspect of having the right company structure and systems. And so it's the right people coming on board first. We have Aaron and Sam who came on December last year. So Aaron's running our Sydney location. Sam's in charge of our marketing. I've had a lot of consultants at the moment as well, mainly because and during that scale-up phase, you look at what percentage utilization you're going to have for somebody. And in a scale-up phase, you're not going to be able to 100% have a wage for everybody. So you've got to look at that phasing in of your scale. There's a lot of specialists out there who are great at what they do, especially with these projectors hanging over our head and, and the way that that's built. So I went out to market, done tender in regards to the projectors and how we're going to roll it around the world and great some great responses there and have built a really solid team. Um, And recently just brought on in the last couple of weeks, our international operations manager will be running those franchises as we scale them. Again, you just look at who you're going to bring on board. But I guess one of the challenges in a chief exec role in a startup is that you technically have every single hat on until you start 
been able to employ people to take off hats and give them, yeah. give them over. And so we're at that stage now where I'm now starting to hand out hats. You're spending a lot of time making sure you've got, again, the right systems. You don't have the right systems in play. You'll end up employing people and they're just to be doing mundane managerial tasks and then doing reporting. So I'm a huge believer in automating the managerial. And I've said that a couple of times already where you can automate your reporting. I don't like people manually typing route reports for me because I'd rather sit down with them with live information, both analyze it together, look for trends, understand what we're, what we're seeing and what we're hearing and then make decisions. Have systems in place is probably like huge. have that done first, then have the right people to in place to yep. begin taking your hats off. And then, yeah, you have the right structure. So yeah. again, purpose, mission values, that's huge. Got to know where you're going, but you can be very, very undocumented when it's just you. Um, so the next part of my little journey at the moment is starting to really build out the operational frameworks. And so you can not just beat in your head, but you're then able to pass that on. And that's, you know, it's really fun. That part, that part of the scale up is really, I have a lot of fun because you're bringing on the team members, you're looking for the right cultural fit. And I do a lot of things that aren't normal in, in regards to that. You know, I look at people's personal values heavily. I look at their ability to, some people when they first get employed with me, they get taken back a little bit because I look at their love languages. So, you know, I'm a huge believer of, you know, well, how do they like to be loved? You know, from that aspect of it, and because you're a team and you've got to be like a family. So you've got to look at, do they love words of affirmation? Are they a gift person? So the way that you start interacting with your team, I'm a huge believer of looking at that aspect of their personality because then I can know, am I giving them as a reward a pay increase? Or some people just want an extra long weekend with their family because they've spent a lot of hard yards grafting, you know, traveling around the world. And that for them is like the ultimate rewarder. You know, as a, as a manager, as you start scaling up, you could be doing a big presentation, handing out awards, telling everybody how great this person is, yet they literally cringe with words of affirmation. So you're actually demotivating them. And then all of a sudden you, they're really disgruntled with you and you don't know why. I'm a huge believer in looking at that and also looking at their guy, so their purpose. Um, and we, I love that model. And I do that model myself once a year. And it's something that I actually do with my team as they come on board. And we look at, well, what are, you, what are your passions? Do your passions actually align with what we're gonna be doing? Because otherwise you, you're gonna have a hole in you. You're not gonna know why going to be doing a job and you might be great at it but for this brand to grow globally and to have passionate people and that energy flow out of them where people just get really excited about the brand like they are that passion has to align so i really spend a lot of time in that zone at first because their cv tells me that they're awesome at whatever that i'm employing them for but it's that little bit of formula inside which i really hunt for and what was it called? Ikigai. It's a Japanese thing. They started looking at the blue zone. So that's where people live over hundred years old. And they started then looking at those areas and it's a brilliant book. You should look it up, really easy read, but it just breaks it down into looking at your passions, looking at, can you actually make money with those passions? If not, that's great. It's probably a hobby or maybe a volunteer role that you might be able to do. But if you're looking for a career out of it, you've got to align your passions and your purpose. And really, you know, purpose is being able to actually give that to someone else. So if I've got the ability to have a passion in regards to stopping defects in construction, I've got the abilities to scale companies and I love both worlds. And if I can actually have a company that I can run that actually facilitates that, boom. That's, happy days that's for happy you. Days. Yeah. So you've found your alignment. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that's what I'm looking for with that team. And also what we're looking for with the new business owners that come and buy the franchises. If they're just looking for a company that 
they can make great margins out of and it's a good business model that won't flow into the energy that their customers need that passion that they're going to be able to do we really got to mirror their frequency and we've got to be excited for them because they're making some really cool changes and they're building the dream home for themselves and we've got to be excited about that and you've got to have the right passions to make that excitable. Where if you're just a technical guy that loves connecting the data and projecting at a one-to-one scale, you're probably gonna be a bit cold. <laughs> and then you're not gonna be really excited about that person. They're gonna walk out going, oh, this is awesome. But that person wasn't high-fiving me. I put my hand up, they left me hanging. Yeah. You know, what's going on? And I think that comes back to really taking the business back to the core principle, which is people. You know, the tech is there as an enabler. It's the people that get excited for the other people. Yeah, for the people 100%. coming through. It's a really key thing, isn't it? I think it's not forgetting that that's, that's what it is. That's, that's the what core it's about. of every yeah. business. And I mean, construction is, we, we both know that. It's all about collaboration. It's all about teamwork. Yeah, when you speak to, you know, the people that run the best projects, it's always they had the right team. When you speak to the horror stories, there's always, there was a couple of people in that team that weren't quite right. Then, then the scapegoating starts happening and everything else. So it's really about that self-accountability and the right team around keeping each other accountable through that process. Bringing it back to life-size plans, company runway moving forward, there's franchising on the on the cards. You guys have developed the systems and, and processes enough to trust people with that business. With the brand, yep. yeah. What else is on the cards? Taking the IP strategy now into market, that's, um, that's a key thing over the next six months looking at the next iterations so I won't talk about them now in the camera but i've got a few things in the pipeline to take to market as well not just looking at what is a great function and form product that we have now that's beautiful like you can come in and make sure your plan's right but looking at you've got a whole bunch of people that still live under roofs that might not really relate to building a new home or i'm not going to be knocking down walls i just want to repurpose my space maybe i need to buy new furniture and how does it fit in my space you know, interior yeah. designers, well, what's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? So I've spent a lot of time in the market with virtual reality or augmented reality and looking at all the different things that are out there at the moment and trying to understand also VR so cool. Why hasn't it taken off hugely in our space? You, you speak to some people and they say, yeah, VR is cool. But you speak to a lot of people, oh, no, no, not, not for me. So what I've spent a lot of time with is looking at how can we bring, just like we bring teams in from a collaboration point of view at that right time in the construction design process, how can anyone that's under a roof have that same ability to come to life-size plans? So really trying to do a very immersive version of what we do and bring the augmented reality, the virtual reality all into one space, but not just be by yourself with a set of goggles on. Look at how can we actually have people side by side in their room before it's even built. That's where we've been spending a lot of time on some R&D going to be testing that R&D out pretty much from next month onwards, starting to go out to some key industry people in the market who I want to bounce some ideas off. Um, some, you know, some big retail firms, some people who are interested in doing the off the flame floor sales with their current model. I actually think the the newer version can actually add some some different dynamic, dynamics to that as well. So a huge amount of R&D. I think R&D is always going to be a huge chunk of my personal time because I love playing. And I'm passionate about it as well, yeah, so I, say, I get a reward. Yeah. So, you know, partnering with the technical specialists I love because then they start talking technical detail to which they start losing me and I can bring them back into, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? And, you know, always get a no for the first five times you ask a question and then they start coming around. Being able to really play in, the, in that world and really spending a lot of time in our current markets as well. So Sydney, Perth, maxing out to be a household name. So you'll start seeing a lot more marketing from us now that we've got, I guess, the core engine built. 
really starting to lift the bonnet so everyone else can see what's going on. That's going to be a huge part over the next 12 months as well. Now, in terms of specific lessons the company has learned along the way, obviously it's never a smooth journey. So what are some of the really key business-related lessons that have been learned along the way? Partner with really good technical firms, have right systems in place. Can't scale without the right systems, you just can't bolt on. You can't then have people do great things with what they are, that's been people. IP, IP is a big one, IP and trademarks. We were, We are lucky that Chris did that piece early on but we've been really able to use his base that he developed and make an extremely robust IP program out of that. And that's been a huge one and a big learning curve for me. That's probably my steepest learning curve personally, the IP aspect of the industry and, and what does that mean, especially around the world with all the different ways that that happens in different countries and regions. They're the key learnings. I guess the other main learning is we'll always be learning. Our products will never just be what you see today. It's gonna be different in five years. It'll be different in 10 years. Actually, that was something that I wanted to raise before. How do you know what to look for? Do you, is it always about data and trends? Is that how you, are they your key indicators for what might be missing? You know, how do you know what to, what to look for? It's an interesting one. I loved listening to a podcast that interviewed uh, Dyson. He, the amount of prototypes that he built, over 5,000 prototypes, and he got it right. And then he went to market and then he started talking to all the people. And they were giving him no's, but he knew he had something. So data's king, but gut. Gut also is is very important and it's surrounding yourself with people who've got the right intuition and proven intuition at the same time. It can't be just a rogue gut feel. Yes, it's got to have some substance to it, but it's, it is a blend of being able to actually be in the present, looking at that data, looking at the trends and then have some vision. You've got to have some vision. New products don't get built if you're just looking at the past. It all, it all comes down to, you hear a lot of, and it's a very, very true statement. As long as you're trying to solve people's problems, if you're solving a problem, you're on the right path. You're heading in the right direction. Yeah. If you're all about revenue and all about how I'm going to scale it and how I'm going to make money, eventually it's going to fall. But if it's all about how you can solve people's problems and you keep iterating based on that and then what data you see based on, well, hang on a minute, they got a great experience here. What about when they need to move in? Or, you know, even for myself, we brought some furniture and I was looking at it going, well, how do I know this couch is going to fit in my room? Yes, I can bring it to life-size plans, but is it going to feel right? Is it going to look right against the color palette? And so I'm, you just always look about well, what problems are people being presented with? And then is there a medium to which you can solve it? And just always ask that question, can I solve it? James, this has been a, an amazing conversation. So thank you so much for being with me. I'm looking forward to getting this out there. Brilliant. Really appreciate your time. It's been fun. This is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to James and the fascinating story of life-size plans. Even though this company has cemented itself as the content projecting specialist in the country, and I dare say the world, it's evident that the scope for expansion into other market segments means life-size plans has an enormous runway ahead of it. In many ways, I feel a real sense of privilege to have been able to document and share the life-size plan story with you while the company is still in its infancy. Whether you're a developer, builder, architect, into real estate sales and marketing, or are an end consumer. It might be the smartest money you ever put into your project by utilizing the experience and technology that life-size plans can make available to you. If you remember the catchphrase mentioned earlier in the episode, there hasn't been a single person who's come in and left without making changes. The question is, do you know what opportunities are being missed? Is there some big change that's being overlooked? And will your design fulfill your needs, or rather your client's needs, now and into the future? 
Again, it's so much easier to find this out while the design is still a bunch of lines on a page, and even easier still if you're experiencing it at life-size scale. I'd like to extend my thanks to James for collaborating on this episode with me, and to the team at Life-Size Plans for hosting me and making this episode possible. As I mentioned in the intro, this episode is also the last one of season one. So I'll be taking the time between now and February of next year to begin recording the next season's episodes. I have to say it's hard to believe that little over a year ago I released my first episode. Suffice to say it's been an extremely rewarding and challenging journey so far. So on reflection I'd like to highlight a couple of pointers that have really stood out from my experience. I'd also like to take some time to extend my thanks to everybody who's contributed to this journey so far. Firstly, it's really important not to overthink things. There's a lot to be said for taking the plunge and for learning fast as you go. I also raise this point as a reminder not to give yourself the opportunity to put too many roadblocks in the way, enough so that you don't make a start. There were a thousand reasons I gave myself not to start this project. So for me, taking the plunge meant I was in the mix and didn't have a way or an excuse to back out. Secondly, if you're doing it scared, it's probably a good thing. Producing this podcast is case in point. A lot of what I've done over the past year had to be done with a great deal of courage. Courage to ask people I didn't know well, if at all, to speak with me. To create questions that were hopefully engaging for you to create a safe environment for my guests so that they felt comfortable to tell their story and courage to ask people to trust me with their reputation and professional standing, something that has taken a lifetime to create. Lastly, I think it's really important just to get started. Before you know it, you've committed to something you can't get out of, like an interview. I mean, I was pretty lucky in this regard. My first interview was with Andrei Dolnikov of Binyan Studios, And he was literally one of the first people that I asked. And unfortunately for me, he said yes. So there I was before I knew it and I was interviewing one of the titans of the ArcViz industry. So I think it's really important just to get started. With that in mind, I'd like to extend my thanks to my guests for season one. Andre Dolnikov of Binyan Studios, Adam Haddo of SJB Architects, Hamid Samavi of Oracy, Adrian Sakari of Ultra Building, Danny Doff of Langen Simmons Double Bay, Anthony Fiorenza of Impero Constructions, Fabian DeMarco of CNC Capital, Brad Chan of Banner Property Group, and James Hickey of Life Size Plans. Gentlemen, without you, there would be no podcast. Thank you for sharing your experiences. I garnered a huge amount of motivation and inspiration from your stories and successes, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. I'd also like to give a huge shout out to my production team, my mum. Yep, this podcast sounds the way it does because of her keen ear for detail. Mum is a retired high school teacher and oral historian, so naturally when I told her I wanted to start a podcast, she was right on board. Mum, the recording is the easy part, but there is no way I would have been able to get this far without your help and support, so thank you. Well, that's it from me for this year. It's been an unbelievable ride so far, and I'm really looking forward to bringing to you the next season's conversations. So stay safe, have a Merry Christmas, and I'll see you next year. Bye for now.